1: Hi, welcome to Ian Weekly, this is Todd DeVoe, your host, and I am here with the author of the Brushfire Plague series, and it's uh, R.P. Regigio. And R.P. Uh, started off with writing the first book, which The Brushfire Plague, which I read, which seems like a decade ago, but it wasn't like a couple of years ago. And then I followed up with The Brushfire Plague Reckoning, and then the final uh, portion of this uh, trilogy is The Brushfire Plague Retribution. You yeah, know, I got to read these books, really excited about them, and so I'm really happy to have R.P. here uh, with us today. So, R.P., can you introduce yourself really quick and just tell me a little bit about your background and, uh, I guess, why you wrote the Brushfire Plague?
0: Yeah, again, this is uh, R.P. Gero, happy to be on the show. Uh, appreciate the time with you. Um, yeah, I just think, you know, some of my background that's relevant, um, you know, to the Brushfire Plague, Plague trilogy is... <laughs> I spent a lot of time working with people in the high stress environments and that really has served me well because a lot of what I what I get into with the Brushfire plague uh trilogy is you know how what happens to people in a survival situation. You know, brushfire plague is a pandemic scenario, it really follows uh kind of the weeks and then into the first few months uh after a a, a really deadly plague breaks out. So within that, you know, people are under enormous stress and dealing with chaos, and so I do get into a lot with uh, how that plays out, the dynamics between people, what's happened sort of with individuals sort of inside their own heads a little bit, and, you know, I carry some of my background in, in dealing with those kind of situations, or I should say similar situations, in writing the bushfire Plague trilogy.
1: So, um, your hero, Cooper, he was kind of thrust into the leadership role uh, with this little group of people that kind of sh- that survived, the initial play. Uh, I don't want to give too much away. I know I wrote. You know, it's funny, I, I read the first book, and my son was 11 uh, when I first started reading the book, so it kind of hit me home a little bit with having, having that aged um, son in there. And Cooper's son in the book is 11 years old. And kind of him dealing with the loss of, of his mom, Cooper trying to, to go through all that. It, it was really a dynamic that I, I really thought was kind of interesting. And the fact that people kind of look at him for, for leadership. When you were writing Cooper, did you know that was going to happen um, as far as his leadership role? Is that what you wanted to do with that character, or is that just something that sort of developed through your process?
0: Yeah, I would say I, I definitely uh, I knew it was going to be central to the story of, of really taking this sort of everyman character, if you will. He, you know, he's a traveling salesman before this all breaks out. I knew that was going to be a central part of the story was how he... Uh, was going to deal with what, what was to come, uh, you know, how he was going to sort of bring his neighbors together to, the, you know, deal with all the chaos and violence. I knew that was going to be central. I definitely would say, like with any kind of writing process, you know, where exactly that went, uh, you know, went in different places than I would say I originally envisioned. Particularly, you're talking about this, the father-son relationship. You know, I definitely have uh, boys that were similar age to the to Jake, the you know, Cooper son's uh, character. And, you know, that definitely went a lot deeper than I, than I thought it would, um, initially. Uh, and I think people, you know, who dive into the trilogy will see that over the evolution of the, of the, of the three books. You know, some of the, I get a lot of comments from readers. Those are some of the most intense scenes are what the sons and, you know, sons dealing with and how Hooper, the father's trying to, you know, hold on to some of his humanity and innocence. There's some of the, you know, people feel some of those are the best scenes in, in the trilogy. But yeah, that definitely went a lot. You know, deeper than I, I originally envisioned. And it really just, again, within I think any kind of good writing, and that's what happens. You get, you kind of go in with a step where you, where the story is going to go, the plot's going to go, where the characters are going to go. But then it sort of takes on a life of its own. And so, yeah, Jake became much more of a central character, uh, to the, to the whole story than I think I, uh, certainly than I originally envisioned he would be. And it just, you know, was was the evolution of that writing process, and and uh, as the story sort of went forward. So, yeah, there was a lot of a lot of interesting stuff that played out there. But coming back to your core question, uh, yeah, Cooper definitely kind of I saw him in that role going in.
1: So obviously the leadership that Cooper uh, was showing was really important to the story. And I just want to kind of get your take on on just leadership in general, because I mean, obviously with Ian Weekly. You know, we're, we're dealing on emergency stuff and, and also leadership of, of, of running uh, emergencies and adapters. And I think that, you know, the people that are listening to this podcast today and the students that I have that are going to be listening to this podcast can take some, some core leadership uh, values from, from Cooper. How did you, like, the big thing with Cooper and, and, and is that he has does not have the ability a lot, which I thought was a really uh, interesting uh, character to be I mean, and he struggles with this throughout the book, uh, the series, uh, his ability or inability to, to lie. you know, and, and so he really had to uh, look at some scenarios in his own life. And, I mean, obviously, what's going on, but he struggled with that, and which made his leadership really kind of interesting because he couldn't just go and do what he wanted to do. He really had to get collaboration with everybody in his group. How does that work out, do you think, for, for people in the real world?
0: Yeah, I think it just, yeah, his inability to lie, again, as you know, since you, you've read them, is uh, based on some you know, pretty deeply impactful stuff that happened in his childhood, and it definitely is a very, it was a very interesting trait to give him, and made in some cases uh, figuring out how to write the story actually much more challenging, <laughs> uh, how, you know, how to maintain some suspense where he's not uh, able to tell an untruth, but yeah, so... Um, yeah, you know, I think there's a lot. I mean, leadership's a big question. I think some of the stuff I focus on, uh, with, with Cooper that I think does generally apply is, you know, I think first and foremost, you know, the new word for it is emotional intelligence, but it's it really is just, you have to be able to pay attention to what's going on around you. You know, where are people at? Not necessarily even just what they're saying, but reading people, um, in terms of, you know, where their emotional state is. Uh, I think is a critical, critical, um, you know, leadership trait. And again, you see that play out in, in, in the brush fire plague. You and know, he is, he does pay attention to people around him. Um, you know, tries to lift people up when he needs to. Other times you just gotta like, you know, get people in emotion and, and, and drive them. But it's interesting. Over the last 10 years, I mean, that, that, you know, the most successful leaders in any field. Uh, now the, you know, the research says it's people with high emotional intelligence. Which is a fancy phrase, but it really just means, again, being able to read people around you. Uh, that's how I think about that. So I think that's one. I think, um, again, with high stress, um, you know, you have to be the, the rock in the storm. I think people probably already know that one, but I think you see Cooper Adam to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's not running around with his hair on fire. You know, he definitely as a character, definitely has, you know, some anger moments, but in general, he is. Uh, you know, you, I think you have to be that that calm amidst the storm. I think is really critical. Another one is, you know, you 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 know, how do you focus people on what you're trying to accomplish? Sometimes you you just give someone a small task just to almost distract them from going into panic state, right? But more than that, it's, it's how do you people focus on, you know, this is what we're doing, this is where we're going. You've got this task, I've got that task. Uh, I think that's another critical part of leadership, particularly within uh, you know crisis situations so those are those are you know a couple of the, the the three that i think jump out that i think are important across the board uh that, that play out within the brushfire plague uh, trilogy in, in in various ways
1: pretty interesting so um we'll right now let's take a break and uh, we'll come back when we hear a word from our sponsors 14, there is at least one person that's been shot. Somebody is still shooting in 453, I have a party shot here at E-Rescue High.
2: Are you ready for the unthinkable? Call our friends at High Speed TAC Med. They provide custom emergency planning and training that saves lives. With years of experience in law enforcement, search and rescue, responding to and managing large-scale incidents, HSTM will evaluate and prepare written plans, training sessions, drills, and debriefs, leaving you with the necessary tools and experience that can save lives. Call HSTM today to discuss your specific needs, and the staff of High Speed TACMED will help ensure that you're ready and are in complete compliance. Call High Speed TACMED today, 805-419-0025. Again, that's 805-419-0024. The friendly staff at HSTM is standing by. Now. Get to the are you can. personnel. I got at least three to seven hits. Are you on Instagram? Be sure to check out EM Weekly's weekly contest for a monthly prize. This month's sponsor is Voodoo Tactical. Visit emweekly.com and check out the hashtag EM weekly Contest for all the details. And now back to EM Weekly with Todd DeVoe.
1: I, I what I find kind of interesting too is is how you were able to mix up the um the characters in the in the in, in the book through the series. You have people that were uh, like, like Cooper's best friend who was you know the prepper guy, the guy who had the for lack of a better term the bunker in the basement with all the stuff, and then you had people around them that had no clue what to do, and he had to actually pull them up from the beehive uh, especially in the first book where there was a lot of uh, conflict between those that were prepared and, and those that weren't. Is that something that you see, and I know a lot of people that are going to be listening to this podcast as well, are CERT members, uh, community emergency response members. Uh, I have students at that are in my uh, university that will be listening to this, and my you know, community public will be listening to this as well. I kind of want to just delve into this a little bit. So wh- why did you, let's just say why, how, how did you decide, like, to have groups of people that weren't ready, those that were, you know, um, when you're doing those conflicts, especially in the first book, um, how did that develop? And, and did you pull from experience or, or from things that you think might happen?
0: Yeah, there's, there, yeah, no, there's a lot of reasons for it. I mean, you know, number one, what, what I wanted to do with the Super our Plague, you know, the first book, and then obviously it, it, it turned into a trilogy, was uh, one of my motivations was, A, just telling a good story. That was first and foremost. Uh, there's sort of woven into that as sort of some of the preparation stuff, the survival stuff. But, uh, you know, I did not want to write a survivalist manual dressed up as a novel, right? That's, I did not want, I went to the office and I wanted to have a good novel that had some of those other things woven into it. And I think, so yeah, from that, it's like, I think what, what, what you're talking about, yes, is, is real life, right? So, but that's just reality. Like, you're, you're gonna, if you are in it, thrust into a survival-type situation, you're going to have to deal mostly with people who have no idea what's going on, are totally not prepared for it. And just even at a psychological level, there is, and that's what I tried to explore definitely in the first one, is that there's just a whole psychological coming to grips with reality that that, that plays out in any, any emergency or survival-type situation. And I think people are, again, probably familiar with that. So you know, yes, I think it's just about trying to describe reality. And I think the, the third thing I would say is that, and this, this gets into a lot of other questions, not just this one, but within the genre of sort of the survivalist kind of uh, prepper-type fiction uh, that, that Brushfire Pride kind of lives in, you know, there's so much, you know, I think there's way too much focus on gear mm. and not enough focus on sort of what I call the soft field, which is you know this issue of how do you deal with crowds of people, right? that he deals with, you know, neighbors are assembling in front of his house. You know, how do you deal with people that are ill-prepared? You know, those dynamics, we were just talking about leadership questions. So that I really wanted to go focus much more on those, these, these kinds of issues. So that fed into this, this as well, that, again, it's just realistic. I think people need to be thinking about those things in advance and developing, again, what people call those soft skills, you know, leadership, dealing with people, you know, how to manage dynamics. Um, how to keep morale up. I mean, all those sets of questions that I think often don't get enough um, attention. But again, I would say the root of it all is if you're going to have a good novel and some, you know, hope, hopefully uh, quality writing, you know, you've got to really have that tension and drama and you've got to have that reality. Um So one thing, again, I think people will see is, you know, the, the characters in there, they change and evolve. You know, they're not the cardboard cutouts. And, that, again, that's real life. That's, uh, I think, good fiction that, that has all those things happening.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, it's, it's funny because I like the genre, obviously. i read a few of the, the, the books that are out there. Some are good and, and some are really poorly done. But this, this is definitely quality in a set of books. I really, really enjoy I have, my, I have my set, and I know somebody asked me to borrow them, and I'm like, almost, you're, you're lucky to give me something to try to open them back.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um,
1: you know, it's funny, though, but if you if you take a look at some real real emergencies or real disasters that have occurred in the last 10 years, I suppose, maybe 15 years, you started with Katrina, uh, you know, you look at Superstorm Sandy that came in, and I remember my wife and I were taught, watching Sandy. She asked me one day, Obviously, I have my I live in Earthquake and uh, I have my Earthquake prepared and stuff and we have some food and water and uh, sometimes really a little bit much, you know um, and then when we're watching Sandy we're watching people going through uh, discarded food from the, the delis and stuff in the trash can and we're having food I look at her this is this is why we're prepared for, for this type of event you know and yeah I think you did a really good job of capturing those people that were not prepared for anything, and and, and kind of put them together those that that, that are. Yeah, I, I actually, uh, 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 his name is escaping me right now. I love the his his uh, his buddy who's the ham operator and, and <laughs> has the yeah has that's, the, uh,
0: that's Dranko. Yeah.
1: Dranko, yeah, I kept wanting calling him Dak, and it was a Dranko. Yeah, uh, he was such a fun character, uh, you know, throughout the entire book, and and uh, he seemed to be. um I don't want to say counter, like, the word, like maybe like a balance to, to Cooper, you know, because he sort of had that, I like, think Cooper didn't, but he had like that more of a worldly, kind of like, uh, like hard edge to him, like where like, yeah, brother, this is, this is the way it is, this is what we gotta do, we have to make a hard decision, Yeah,
0: yeah that was, that was, yeah, no, that definitely was, was intentional. There's, there's a lot of play there, so Cooper is more of an optimistic kind of person. Dranko is like your, you know, dyed in the wool pessimist. Uh, you know, Cooper was not, any sort of prepared person, right? And, right. And, you know, a good friend, Paul Dranko, again, he was very well prepared and was a, you know, prepper, basically. And so, you know, there was a lot of sort of, I wanted to have a lot of those, those tensions in there, and I think there's, a, you know, there's a lot of humor between the two of them as well. But again, it's, you know, that, that feeds into both a way to have, you know, some good dramatic tension going on, but also have good lessons emerging between the two of them going back and forth, from both, both sides, right? But yeah, that was a really interesting dynamic, and it's interesting you bring up Katrina because that's you know, that's actually that's when I sort of uh, started started on my preparedness sort of journey, if you will, was was after Katrina because up until that moment, I think I was like you know most Americans who would feel like, wait, well, if something really bad happens, you know, we'll, there'll be people coming to help us out, and we saw in that moment that you can't always depend on that uh, in in a natural disaster situation. So that was really what started me on that journey. So. And you know my kids were really small at that point, and but I me- I remember thinking like, look, I don't ever want to be in that situation, and you know more than that, I just have a responsibility as a father to make sure that you know that I'm at least prepared if, if some bad stuff happens, not just for me and my my wife, but also my two at that point my, my two very young kids. So yeah, so that that definitely was a, a moment for me, and you know got me on a different path.
1: Yeah, it it, it definitely me too as far as that goes. You know, I, I remember. With Katrina, I was working for LA County uh, in EMS, and you sent a bunch of people out there. And, and half the stuff that got on the news, not even half the stuff, but there was a bunch of stuff that didn't even make the news that opened my eyes, specifically of, of how hospitals were closed and, and just wouldn't take people if you weren't sick enough, you know. And they're mm-hmm. they, they saying, hey, just come back if you get more sick, but we just can't take you right now, you know. So it's definitely, uh, uh, shows that we do have a fragile system here for sure. Um, and that needs work. You know, and I think that's, that's one of the things that people, the general public, uh, sometimes don't really understand that our, our system is just one disaster away from being overwhelmed. You know, um, even here in LA County and, or in Orange County. About, you know, um, I, I know that, you know, we see these with the hurricanes and stuff like that, but, uh, yeah, we're definitely in a fragile situation at times especially with some of the economics that are happening and little tangent here that we have um in L.A. County and Orange County, we have hospitals that were closed and that are closed because they just can't afford to stay open anymore. And so less and less emergency rooms and, and those facilities are, are available. So we can get overwhelmed pretty quickly. Uh, we yeah. have to actually you know uh, with some of our like, uh, new outbreaks uh, that we've had. So, yeah, some of the stuff that's in these books that people think is far-fetched is not as far-fetched as <laughs>
0: As, as they really think. Yeah, um, well, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, you know, one of the things that sort of, I think, led me into this, writing this this trilogy was, growing up, I've always read apocalyptic fiction, you know, um, always been fascinated with it. Uh, you know, and a lot of it, though, focused on sort of, you know, after the collapse. And I was, I've always been interested in, like, you know, how does stuff sort of unravel? And so that was definitely another focus for me writing the Brushfire Plague trilogy, was, you know, the first book really just focused on the first couple of weeks, and then by the time you get to the, the next, finish the next two, you know, you're probably about three or four months out. I mean, so that was an area of focus for me, and I absolutely agree with you. I think most people are unaware of, of how, you know, the system is built for normal times. It is not built for, you know, large amounts of people who are needing help um, or, you know, other services getting disrupted. So, and I really, I think I tried to show at least pieces of that, um, you know, in Brush product was.
1: I did see that. I, I, I thought it was kind of funny. This is my, my favorite part about the. Uh, I don't know, I guess it's my favorite part. One of the things that makes me chuckle a little bit. Because I am addicted to coffee, for sure. You know? And uh, I love the fact that that was like a, a running thing going on. Like when there was like real coffee to be had, everybody's like, oh my gosh, it's a <laughs> coffee! Woohoo! You know? I was like, oh yeah, I'm right there with you guys, man. If I, if my coffee goes away, I'm going to be really bummed out for a long time. I'm going to give a little bit away in the third book. I like when they get back to Portland. And, uh, um, there's a people there that were hoarding coffee or whatever, and they said, hey, if you ever want to save the world or get everything back to normal again from the r- ruler of the United States, is figure out a way to get a shipment of coffee from Columbia Well,
0: here. I know that's not true everywhere in the country, but it's absolutely true in Portland. Uh, I mean, I don't live there any longer, but, um, coffee is a pretty good unifier, and with definitely wield a lot of power in that position. and I, I mean, you're calling out, I mean, another thing that uh, I hope uh, kind of people experience reading Brush Plague is uh, you know, I try to have a lot of humor as well in it, but I, I feel like often gets lost in this genre you know, so much of it seems like very serious, and obviously there's a lot in, in, in my, my books that are, but you know, that's another part of, again, A good story, good fiction, but B just real life, that even in very dark times, crisis moments. People, not everyone loses their sense of humor, and in fact, you know, maintaining a sense of humor is an important part of helping people get through the stress. So there's a lot of a, a lot of jokes written through. A lot of it is between Dranko and Cooper uh, because of their relationship. But I tried to again reflect that reality that is real, but it's also important when people are going through a crisis uh, situation.
1: Now, a couple things in there that I found kind of interesting. I told my wife. I didn't what is that book about? And I I kept telling her, oh, it's a love story. She's like, love story? She's like, what are you doing? And I explained to her what the story's about. She goes, where's our love story in there? I said, well, there is kind of like a love triangle going on, you know, and I I explained it to her. She's like, oh, you're crazy. You know, but I think it's funny how you're able to to add that in there, those emotions that everybody sort of has, and just because the crisis is going on, there is still that uh, connection that people have. And then I also you could also call this a coming of age story too, you know, in the likes of like things like Stand By Me or whatever, where you have this young child when it starts off, and then by the end of the series, he's, he has no uh, adolescence, you know, it just kind of goes away, and, and I found that an interesting concept. I mean, obviously, adolescence is a fairly modern concept, mm-hmm. uh, probably since like probably the late 1900s, mid 1900s, or 1920s or so. You know, and we're used to it growing up with adolescence and, and uh, Cooper's son didn't have the ability to go through the adolescence and went from, you know, eight. a young boy to man almost. It, it was a matter of, of months. You know? and, and how was that, you know, those two things, like putting a love story in, involved in the middle of this and then also having a coming of age with Cooper's son, how did that play out with your, with your writing?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll you know, with the romantic triangle, I have to say, but, you know, that was something my wife was not too pleased with. Uh <laughs> it's like life just like the wife just do You know what's going on here, and I'm like, well, you know, a I think it is reality, high stress situation. Uh, th- these are real characters that are interacting, and, and you know, I'm not gonna lie, there was a part of it. It's, it's also again fits into having a good story that that has a, you know different elements to it. You know, and and so yeah, that thread sort of plays out between the three books, and I think it's you know. I mean, honestly, what that is, is, is the, the, the sort of tension or, or you know, war going on with Cooper as a sort of a, a woman he has, you know, lots of physical attraction with versus someone who's probably more of a, a fit personality-wise is a little more practical. And there's just that playing out, that tension, and I, and I won't give away where it ends, but I think it ends pretty well. And then, the, you know, the father-son thing, again, like, um, that, that, like I was saying earlier, like that really went a lot deeper than I thought it was. But again, it just, as a writer, as I just contemplated, yeah, you know, what would being in this world, you know, have have this effect on this this particular character? You know, his name is Jake. You know, uh, 11 and sort of has his 12th birthday in the middle of middle of all of this. So he's a pretty young guy. And you know, I've done a lot. of, did a lot of background research on the effects of of violence and stuff like that on on uh, both adults and and uh, adolescents as part of the process. And so. You know, that's really where it came from, and so there is this long-running, um, you know, again, tension, you know, uh, situation uh, where, you know, really Jake's kind of bouncing up and down between being an actual kid and, you know, depression, withdrawal, anxiety, and Cooper's trying to, you know, and also just becoming cold, right, right. and, you know, almost like losing his humanity, really. And so, and then Cooper is a father, you know, he's bouncing around between like despair about how to, you know, help, you know, his own sort of depression, uh, and then moments of hope where he he thinks he's able to, you know, lift him back up and pull him back onto the, the, the sort of heaven, you know, humanity, not not losing emotions and the ability to emotionally connect. So, and I, and I, I, you know, that was again took on really did take a life life of its own. But again, I think uh, again, if people read through the trilogy, I also kind of like where that all ends uh, with Jake. But uh, yeah, that's those are some of the elements that were going on in terms of those different dynamics. And and uh, like I was saying earlier too, like and I've heard this. This isn't just me as the writer. Like I would say the most consistent feed, feedback I get from from uh, readers really there's two. One is about the father son how that hit people, and that's usually coming from fathers, but not always. That people, you know, that's just the feedback I get on email or, or some some of the reviews online is, you know, just like that relationship kind of hit people. The second one I get, which also makes me happy, is, is ones from people who said, "I never thought about preparing for anything, but now I'm going to the store to buy some canned beans and water." You know, like, right? You know, because that's also part of what of was one of my other motivations for writing this is to give people an entree into this this world that you know I went into after Katrina. Um, I think it's a great, I think it actually is a good book to give that friend, relative, etc., that that thinks you're crazy for doing any kind of preparedness. Um, it's a good vehicle to get people to see, oh, I see how this could actually, something like, this could actually happen. But anyway, um, yeah, I get a lot of feedback on the father-son relationship. That's, that's a very, uh, and that, that makes you feel good as a writer. You know, the, the, the term for it is emotional engagement. Um, so, when you get those kind of moments of feedback, you're like, oh, that's great. And you know, I hit someone in the gut. You know, this hit somebody in the heart. You know, that's, you know, you love it as a writer. It's pretty awesome.
1: Hey, I know one thing about what Dranko, when what I thought of what did well with him, was that he was definitely somebody who was well ahead of the curve as far as the comparative And, you know, I don't, I, it, it sounds bad to, that I'm saying this, but, it, you know, the term prepper now has become kind of like a, a bad word, I suppose. He was a guy who was prepared for, for anything, but he wasn't, it didn't consume his life. It wasn't like the only thing he did, you know, still, you know and, and I think that's that balance that, that most people are looking for. Uh, but, yeah, he did a good job of that.
0: Yeah, no, it's uh, funny. I mean, um, you know, the Dranko character is actually based on a, a friend of mine. We've been friends since, like, eighth grade. You know, it's not exactly him, obviously, but there's a lot of him in it, and... Um, you know he is uh, he's you know one of the uh, really interesting characters and you know I think again as people see it you know Cooper changes Jake changes Dranko changes you know there's another character in there Calvin who starts out really as kind of a bit player and really kind of rises in in prominence as the books go on you know and and you know he changes so there's a lot of that going on of, of which again is real life it's good fiction makes for a good story but it's also just real life people aren't static. But, um, yeah, Dranko, no question, is, is one of my favorite characters in, you know, in the trilogy. And just, again, that I think, I think, uh, Cooper and him have just a lot of great, like, back and forth where they're, again, they're learning from each other, um, arguing with each other. And again, real life, you know, so.
1: Yeah. It's funny, you talk about Calvin, and in my head, he looked, you know, like, I guess I, you know, I wouldn't read books and of people their own, is a character. And he he reminded me of this farmhand that worked for this uh, place where my my grandmother, she had Alzheimer's. When we put her in a home, that was like on a farm, literally on a farm. And there was this guy that worked there, and he was a Korean War vet. And when I was a kid, I loved talking to him. And I I automatically attached Calvin, uh, or him to Calvin's uh, uh, personality and stuff like that. I I don't know what it was, but about that, but... Uh, Calvin was definitely a, a good um, moral compass I suppose for, for both Draco and also for the yeah. yeah okay I have one more question for you regarding some character mode and um, all right so you introduced this guy in, in I guess is third 80s the British well the guy who grew up in the Seattle uh, area or whatever but he kind of talked a little bit the British accent Yes <laughs> okay so why why that?
0: <laughs> you know, it's funny, My, my. I think my wife really, like, hated that character. So, you know, part of what happens is, and, and, and you saw this as you read the whole trilogy, is, you know, some of the, you know, there's these side characters, you know, who are kind of, you know, have a, have quirky personality traits, and some of them die off. Um, <laughs> so, honestly, it was my attempt to bring in another quirky character, and, you know, plays an important part in the story, but the whole, you know, he has sort of the mock uh English accent. He's a complete Anglophile. It was really just to add some some more color uh, to to that last uh, the, the the end of the trilogy. But uh, again, some people like him. Some people he drives him crazy with the way he talks. And my wife was in the latter category. She's like, this guy drives him crazy with the way he talks. And I was like, well, that's sort of the point. Like, part of uh, writing is you know you're not supposed to actually like every single character. It's okay if some of them you know drive you crazy. <laughs> Because <laughs> it, it still it means it's at least still hitting you some way right there's that emotion right which is what you want as a writer but that was it that, it was really just that um, I don't know if you remember the the, the woman from uh, the older the elderly woman from from uh, Kentucky in the fur in Brush Bar Plague the first one Lily who is quite the hoot you know um, and anyway so it was just it was just sort of in that vein of, of adding some more uh, hopefully a little bit of humor a little bit of color to the to the book.
1: In my in my head, I had him dressed like Montgomery in World War Two. <laughs> I don't know why, but every time I read him, that was the outfit that I pictured him in I don't know. Kind of well, that's weird.
0: the that's the beauty of a uh, book versus film is you get to do all that stuff. You get to you create what it looks like a lot in your own head, and so yeah.
1: That's awesome. Oh man, oh, this is a really good trilogy. I mean, just for it's a fun read. It really is. If you like intense. Yeah, like thriller-type books, and, and if you like the, the end-of-the-world-as-we-know-it type of uh, of books, you can't go wrong um, with this trilogy and all, I highly recommend it. Number one, is there anything else in the pipeline, Peter?
0: Uh, I'm trying to figure out where to go next. Uh, I, I've thought about uh, sort of picking up the, 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 the series, uh, maybe set into the future, five or six years, and really focusing on Jake as a central character. Uh, cause, you know, he'd be in that 17, 18 year old range by then. I think, and I, you know, I thought it would be really interesting to explore what that, what the brush fire plague war looks like, you know, five, six years out. Um, there's a lot that happens even in just in the first few months. So that's probably the, the biggest thing I'm thinking about. Um, I've also thought about sort of the nonfiction side of, uh, doing, doing sort of, uh, some work on, you know, what, what does leadership, um, in a survivalist types of, you know, an apocalyptic, quite, you know, uh, scenario look like. So those are the two main things bouncing around that I'll probably dive into one of those two things next.
1: That's awesome. Okay. Two, how can people get a hold of you and buy your books?
0: Yeah, and I want to thank you all for, for calling out the, the action pack side of this whole thing. We haven't really talked much much about that, but I'll just share quickly. One of my favorite uh, email reviews I got, you know, it was actually somebody I, I know, uh, who's a brutally honest kind of person, so he emailed me and he says, I don't, I don't usually read fiction, I've never read this genre, the characters are not people I would normally be sympathetic to, but after the first five pages, I didn't want to put it down, uh, and that's pretty much a verbatim quote, uh, and it's always my favorite review, <laughs> because it's, it's my most hostile reader, and, you know, so there is a. I think thanks for calling that out there, I think it's, most people say this is pretty action-packed, and it's definitely fast moving. So, with that, yeah, where people can pick it up, it's really best places are going to be Amazon.com. It's available in paperback or Kindle. And then it's also on Barn, you know, VN.com, which is for Barnes and Noble. You can get it on the Nook Reader as well as paperback there if you prefer doing with them. If you want to get more background on the series, uh, again, obviously on Amazon, there's a ton of reader reviews. Uh, but also you can always go to brush, brushfireplague.com. And, and, and bounce around there. There's there's there's, you know, more background and, and stuff like that. So yeah, hope that's helpful.
1: I think so. And um one last question for you. Okay, you ready for this one? I'm ready. Alright. So who is your favorite character in the book? I know it's a hard one.
0: Oh my favorite character. Oh that is a hard one. I kinda I, I'll probably it, it, I'm going to say, I'll give two answers. So, uh, the, my favorite character who's through all three is actually Dranko. You know, I just... Uh, it, it, it's probably because in some ways, you know, opposite my own personality, right? The pessimistic side, all that. But I also just like the way he changes and evolves. And then the, probably my favorite character though isn't in, in all three is, is that first, uh, the character I just talked about, the little, the elderly woman just because she's so sassy. <laughs> I think adds a ton of humor the first one. She's like that mythical, uh, you know, elderly neighbor I sort of wished I had <laughs> at, at some point who just is, has, you know, wit as sharp as, as a razor blade. Um So that's probably my favorite character who's, who's not quite in all three of them. But that awesome. is a hard question. I like it. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that one before. That's a great question. <laughs> yeah, no, I know.
1: I, I was talking to another friend of mine um, who's a writer, and I, I'd always ask her the same question. She's goes, like, it's like trying to choose your children. I'm like, right, I understand the development, but uh, that's cool. So thank you so much for being here today. You know, is there anything else that you'd like to add or, or tell the, uh, the listeners about
0: Well, one, as I just, it sounds from your audience, I just want to thank everybody that's ever going to listen to us for their uh, service uh, and dedication to our community, or soon to be, it sounds like some of them are in school. Um, so I want to say that for sure. And, you know, for anyone who, do- who does uh, dive into the trilogy, I hope you enjoy it. And I want to thank you for having me on today. This has been a lot of fun, actually, so I appreciate it.
1: No problem. All right. You have a
2: great day. You too. And that concludes this episode of EM Weekly. Be sure to visit us next week. Todd DeVoe and Steve Detweiler talk about where EM is headed. Thanks for listening, and be sure to visit us at emweekly.com.